When Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery announced in the mid-1830s that they had been ordained by John the Baptist in May 1829, and subsequently by ancient apostles Peter, James, and John, it was a surprising disclosure, even for those who had been followers from the beginning. David Whitmer, who first met Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery within weeks of their alleged celestial ordinations, and conveyed them from Harmony, Pennsylvania, to his father's house in Fayette, New York, where they completed the translation of the Book of Mormon, repeatedly said he never heard about the angelic bestowal of authority until years later. While being interviewed in 1885, Whitmer emphatically stated, I never heard that an angel had ordained Joseph and Oliver to the Aaronic priesthood until the year 1834, five or six. When asked by Orson Pratt in 1878, can you tell the date of the bestowal of the apostleship upon Joseph by Peter, James, and John? David Whitmer said, I do not know. Joseph never told me. I can only tell you what I know, for I will not testify to anything I do not know. Significantly, Pratt was also an early convert who first met Joseph Smith at the Whitmer home in Fayette in October 1830. Whitmer did not only not know the date, he also had not heard the claim until it was made public in 1835. On 12th of February, 1886, Edward Stevenson wrote to Apostle Franklin D. Richards, I inquired of David and John Whitmer, who say they do not have any knowledge of, neither do the records show, concerning Peter, James, and John's coming to the prophet Joseph. William E. McLellan, who joined the church in 1831, became one of the original Twelve Apostles in 1835 and excommunicated in 1838 for criticizing church leaders. Recalled in 1877, I never heard of John the Baptist ordaining Joseph and Oliver. I heard not of James, Peter, and John doing so. Although McLellan said he heard Smith tell the story of the church's founding, probably more than 20 times. I never heard of John or Peter, James, and John. In a notebook, McLellan wrote, In 1831, I heard Joseph tell his experience many times about angels' visits and about finding the plates and their contents coming to light, but I never heard one word of John the Baptist or of Peter, James, and John's visit and ordination till it was told some years afterward in Ohio. In an 1872 letter to Joseph Smith's son, Joseph III, he wrote, But as to the story of John the Baptist ordaining Joseph and Oliver on the day they were baptized, I never heard of it in the church for years, although I carefully noticed things that were said, and today I do not believe the story. These statements are significant for apparently the Whitmers and McLellan, and presumably everyone who served with them in the Mormon hierarchy, as well as those under them, were ordained and functioned in their various church offices for about five years without knowing the angelic origins of their authority. Nor did they think such bestowal of authority was necessary. As I will show, early church records support the claims of the Whitmers and McLellan, making the subsequent claim to angelic ordination seem anachronistic. 
Indeed, the claims of Smith and Cowdery appeared to be later fabrications designed to thwart usurpers and promote group cohesion, which they retrofitted to earlier historical events. My purpose here is to discuss Joseph Smith's original authority claims, to reconstruct key changes, and to suggest why the stories of angelic ordination were introduced. Not only did McLellan say he never heard the stories of angelic ordination, but in 1872 he argued that they were untrue and unnecessary. An angel never ordained a man to any office since the world began. Then say you, how did Joseph and Oliver get authority to start? I answer, that a revelation from the Lord gives a man both power and authority to do whatever it commands. The Lord commanded Joseph to baptize, confirm, and ordain Oliver, then Oliver to do the same for him. This was legal and valid. After his 1886 interview with David Whitmer, Edward Stevenson reported, David said the prophet of God received the command from God, and that was sufficient authority. He did not seem to understand the necessity of the connecting link of ordinations. While this concept of authority seemed puzzling to later Mormons, like Stevenson, it was nevertheless consistent with contemporary church records, where the claim of angelic ordination is not only missing, but divine command as the source of authority is emphasized. In the month following their baptisms, Smith dictated a revelation that reminded Cowdery, Thou hast been baptized by the hand of my servant, Joseph Smith, Jr., according to that which I have commanded him. Wherefore, he hath fulfilled the thing which I commanded him. Prior to revealing the angel ordination story in his 1834 history, Cowdery first stated what was more widely known. After writing the account given of the Savior's ministry to the remnant of the seed of Jacob upon this continent, it was easily to be seen that amid the great strife and noise concerning religion, none had authority from God to administer the ordinances of the gospel, and we only waited for the commandment to be given, Arise and be baptized. The command came, according to Smith and Cowdery, on 15th of May, 1829. In her 1845 history, Lucy Smith remembered what she had been told about this event. One morning they sat down to their work, as usual, and the first thing which presented itself through the Urim and Thummim, that is, seer stone, was a commandment for Joseph and Oliver to repair to the water and attend to the ordinance of baptism. They did so. They had now received authority to baptize. The eldership had a similar origin. In his 1838 history, Joseph Smith claimed that he and Cowdery ordained one another elders in response to a divine command he received while working on the translation at the home of Peter Whitmer Sr. in Fayette, New York, in June 1829. We had not long been engaged in solemn and fervent prayer, Smith said, when the word of the Lord came unto us in the chamber, commanding us that I should ordain Oliver Cowdery to be an elder in the Church of Jesus Christ, and that he also should ordain me to the same office. In an 1842 epistle to the church, Smith mentioned this event as the voice of God in the chamber of Old Father Peter Whitmer in Fayette, Seneca County, New York. As will soon become apparent, Joseph Smith connected the bestowal of the eldership with the command of God and not the appearance of Peter, James, and John, 
as most Mormons mistakenly assume. In his history, Smith said that while the authority had been given, they postponed their ordinations until the church could be organized. In a revelation dictated by Joseph Smith on the 6th of April, 1830, the Lord said, It behoveth me that he, Joseph, should be ordained by you, Oliver, mine apostle, this being an ordinance unto you, that you are an elder under his hand, he being the first unto you, that you might be an elder unto this church of Christ. Significantly, the claim of angelic ordination is absent from the church's foundational document, the Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ, now known as Doctrine and Covenants, Section 20, which outlines the duties of the various church offices and ordinances. This document, which is dated June 1830, begins by stating the authority upon which the church was organized, including a summary of the miraculous events preceding that organization yet is completely silent about the angelic ordinations Smith and Cowdery later claimed. A review of this preamble will provide a glimpse into the kind of authority early Mormons were claiming. It begins by declaring, The rise of the Church of Christ in these last days, it being regularly organized and established agreeable to the laws of our country, by the will and commandments of God, which commandments were given to Joseph, who was called of God and ordained an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of this church, and also Oliver, who was called of God an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of this church, and ordained under his hand, and this according to the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory, both now and forever. Amen. This would have been a good time to mention angel ordination. Instead, divine command and human ordination are the foundation for church organization. This preamble goes on to review the various events in Joseph Smith's life leading up to his organizing the church. For after that it truly was manifested unto this first elder that he had received a remission of sins. He was entangled again in the vanities of the world. This is usually interpreted as an allusion to Joseph Smith's 1820 vision of deity. But after truly repenting, God ministered unto him by an holy angel, whose countenance was as lightning, and whose garments were pure and white above all whiteness, and gave unto him commandments, which inspired him from on high, and gave unto him power, by the means of which were before prepared, that he should translate a book. This refers to several appearances of an angel to Joseph Smith in association with the coming forth of the gold plates in 1823 and 1827, and subsequent translation of the Book of Mormon through use of magic spectacles recovered with the plates. Which book was given by inspiration and is called the Book of Mormon, and is confirmed to others by the ministering of angels, and declared unto the world by them? This is an allusion to the three witnesses, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris, who were shown the plates by an angel in late June 1829. Note the use of the generic term, ministering of angels, although they had seen one angel. This historical narrative ends at this point, without mentioning the restoration of priesthood through angelic ordinations. Thus, as of June 1830, the authority by which Joseph Smith organized the Church of Christ was rooted in commandment from God and appearances of an angel in association with the Book of Mormon. 
The failure to mention angelic ordination as the source of authority is significant and strongly supports the testimonies of the Whitmers and McClellan. This was also consistent with the Book of Mormon, which described the apostasy in terms of the loss of the spirit and spiritual gifts, and never in terms of a broken chain of priesthood ordination. About 147 BCE, Alma received authority to baptize through the Spirit, having been converted through the testimony of the martyred prophet Abinadi. Alma fled into the wilderness where he began baptizing in the waters of Mormon. Taking his first convert into the water, Alma cried, O Lord, pour out thy Spirit upon thy servant, that he may do this work with holiness of heart. And when he had said these words, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he said, Helam, I baptize thee, having authority from the Almighty God. And after Alma had said these words, both Alma and Helam were buried in the water. As previously mentioned, Cowdery claimed that he and Smith became concerned about their unbaptized status after writing the account of the Savior's ministry to the remnant of the seed of Jacob upon this continent. Yet there was nothing in the account requiring angelic ordination. Rather, in 3rd Nephi chapter 11, Jesus gives Nephi and the other Nephite disciples power to baptize by a verbal commission. After descending from heaven and appearing to multitudes of astonished Nephites, the resurrected Jesus calls Nephi to him and says, I give unto you power that ye shall baptize this people when I am again ascended into heaven. And again the Lord called others, and said unto them likewise, and he gave unto them power to baptize. This commission authorized them to baptize using the following words, Having authority given me of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. From this account, Cowdery says, It was easily to be seen, None had authority from God to administer the ordinances of the gospel. For have men authority to administer in the name of Christ, who deny revelations, when his religion is based, built, and sustained by immediate revelations in all ages of the world, when he has had a people on earth? Unlike the sectarians, Smith and Cowdery had received direct commandment from God to baptize one another. The first major step toward stratification of church authority came at a conference on the 3rd of June, 1831, in Kirtland, Ohio, when Smith introduced and ordained several men to the high priesthood, which Smith later explained gave holders power to seal up the saints unto eternal life. Apparently, it was originally understood that those who were given the high priesthood were still elders, with additional authority. But by the 26th of April, 1832, when Smith was sustained in Missouri as president of the high priesthood, the minutes of the meeting list high priests and elders separately. This shift from high priesthood to office of high priest made it possible to later designate elder and high priest as offices within the high priesthood. Prior to June, 1831, the only major division of authority was between elders the charismatic leaders, and all others, that is, priests, teachers, and deacons. However, it is important to note that while these men held different offices and callings, they had no concept that there were two priesthoods in the church. 
The authority to baptize prior to the organization of the church was just that. It did not carry over into the church as a lesser authority, as later conceived. In other words, the offices of priest, teacher, and deacon did not trace their authority to Smith's and Cowdery's 15th of May 1829 baptisms, but rather were seen as appendages of the eldership. Smith and Cowdery had been called by revelation to be elders and apostles, and they had been given authority to ordain other elders and organize the church. The elders were given the authority to ordain priests, teachers, and deacons, as stipulated in the Articles and Covenants. With the introduction of the high priesthood, there were now two priesthoods in the church with separate origins, both bestowed by revelation. Sometime between 20th of July and 22nd of September, 1832, Joseph Smith began preparing an account of his early history and the rise of the church. In the preamble to this unfinished history, Smith outlined the authority upon which he founded a church. This statement is an updating of the preamble to the Articles and Covenants of the Church of two years earlier. Let's break down this statement and examine closely what Joseph Smith was claiming. Firstly, he receiving the testimony from on high. This parallels the allusion to the first vision in the Articles and Covenants. Secondly, the ministering of angels. This parallels the generic use of the term ministering of angels in association with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the Articles. Thirdly, the reception of the holy priesthood by the ministering of angels to administer the letter of the gospel, the law and commandments as they were given unto him, and the ordinances. Some will want to read this as an allusion to the later claim that John the Baptist had appeared and ordained Smith and Cowdery to the lesser or ironic priesthood, which includes the authority to baptize. However, as the testimonies of the Whitmers and McClellan demonstrate, there was no story in circulation to which this could allude. This was therefore likely understood as deriving the authority to baptize from having received the ministering of angels in association with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon from whom, paralleling the Articles and Covenants, Smith received commandments and power to translate. At this time, this first authority was called the Holy Priesthood, but shortly it will receive a name change. Fourthly, the confirmation and reception of the High Priesthood after the Holy Order of the Son of the Living God, with power and ordinance from on high to preach the Gospel in the administration and demonstration of the Spirit, the keys of the kingdom of God confirmed upon him, and the continuation of the blessings of God to him, etc. This obviously refers to the reception of the high priesthood at the June 1831 conference. It is important to note that at this time there are only two priesthoods, the holy priesthood, which consists of elders, priests, teachers, and deacons, and the high priests holding the high priesthood. This first attempt by Smith to write his history remained unfinished and unpublished during his lifetime. However, the Whitmers would have been familiar with the details of Smith's claims, although they later questioned the addition of the high priesthood. On 22nd of September, 1832, Joseph Smith dictated an important revelation dealing with priesthood, now known as Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, verses 1 through 42. 
which reconceptualized the two orders of priesthood and laid the groundwork for later developments. This revelation speaks of the lesser priesthood and greater priesthood, and for the first time identifies the lesser with Aaron and his sons. The claim that the restored church would include Aaronic priests who ministered under the law of Moses was the most controversial aspect of this revelation and needed some justification. Indeed, most Christians believe the Aaronic priesthood ended with the law of Moses and was superseded by Christ's priesthood, as explained in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. The revelation anticipated criticism regarding the restoration of Old Testament priesthood by alluding to the promise in Exodus 40:15 that Aaron's sons would be given an everlasting priesthood throughout all their generations. According to the revelation, the Lord confirmed a priesthood also upon Aaron and his seed throughout all their generations, which priesthood also continueth and abideth forever with the priesthood which is after the holiest order of God, meaning Christ's priesthood. The revelation also alludes to the Lord's promise in Malachi 3.3 to purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. The revelation thus predicts the fulfilling of this promise, stating that the sons of Moses and also the sons of Aaron shall offer an acceptable offering and sacrifice in the house of the Lord, which house shall be built unto the Lord in this generation, upon the consecrated spot as I have appointed, meaning Independence, Missouri. Whereas Joseph Smith had previously referred to the first bestowal of authority as the holy priesthood, the revelation linked this term with the greater priesthood, explaining that because Israel rebelled, the Lord took Moses out of their midst and the holy priesthood also, and the lesser priesthood continued. According to the revelation, Moses had received the holy priesthood under the hand of his father-in-law Jethro who had received it through a long line of successive ordinations, including Melchizedek, back to Adam. This was news to Bible believers, of course. The Revelation also states that the priesthood continueth in the church of God in all generations and is without beginning of days or end of years. This was an allusion to Hebrews 7.3 as well as Alma 13.7 which speaks of the mysterious Old Testament character Melchizedek as a type of Christ, because, textually speaking, he had neither beginning of days nor end of life. Thus the Revelation, as well as Alma 13.7, changes figurative language into historical fact. The September 1832 Revelation also restructures the church offices, explaining that, the offices of teacher and deacon are necessary appendages belonging to the lesser priesthood, which priesthood was confirmed upon Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons were priests, and the offices of deacon and teacher come from the New Testament and Book of Mormon. What the Revelation did not do is link the Aaronic priesthood with the authority Smith and Cowdery received to baptize on the 15th of May, 1829. Rather, the various offices in the church emanated from the eldership and its authority to organize a church and ordain men to the various offices. The Revelation also explains 
rather anachronistically, that the offices of elder and bishop, both of which predated the June 1831 endowment of the high priesthood, are necessary appendages belonging to the high priesthood. There were still two priesthoods in the church, but the demarcation line had changed. This revelation also lays the groundwork for Smith's and Cowdery's subsequent claims to angelic ordination, explaining that although the lesser priesthood had continued with the house of Aaron among the children of Israel until John the Baptist, who was ordained by an angel of God at the time he was eight days old unto this power, to overthrow the kingdom of the Jews. However, John was a special case that Smith had yet to apply to himself. Neglecting to mention an angelic source for these priesthoods, the revelation instead states that Mormons had the right to the two priesthoods because they had become the sons of Moses and Aaron through the renewing of their bodies by the Spirit. The concept of an unbroken chain of physical ordination was secondary to the belief in a preordination by God. In his discourse on the high priesthood, Alma explains, I would that ye should remember that the Lord God ordained priests after his holy order, which was after the order of his Son, and this is the manner after which they were ordained, being called and prepared from the foundation of the world according to the foreknowledge of God. The 1832 Revelation states that without the greater or higher priesthood, no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live, which is puzzling since only a few months previously Smith had pinned an account of his first vision of deity. In an 1880 sermon, Apostle Orson Pratt attempted to explain this discrepancy by claiming that Smith had already been ordained before this world was made. Along the same line, Joseph Smith dictated a revelation in December 1832 that explained that the high priesthood hath continued through the lineage of your fathers, for ye are lawful heirs according to the flesh, and have been hid from the world with Christ in God. Therefore your life and the priesthood have remained, and must needs remain through you and your lineage. The first public announcement of angelic ordination came in the October 1834 issue of the Mormon periodical Messenger and Advocate, published in Kirtland, Ohio. In an open letter to W. W. Phelps in Missouri, Oliver Cowdery included the following account of events preceding his and Smith's 15th of May, 1829, baptisms. On a sudden, as from the midst of eternity, the voice of the Redeemer spake peace to us, while the veil was parted and the angel of God came down clothed with glory. His voice, though mild, pierced to the center, and his words, I am thy fellow servant, dispelled every fear. We received under his hand the holy priesthood, as he said, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer this priesthood and this authority, which shall remain upon earth, that the sons of Levi may yet offer an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. By putting Malachi 3.3 in the angel's mouth, Cowdery created an anachronism, because the notion of a greater and lesser priesthood, with the lesser being associated with the Levitical priesthood, wasn't part of the discourse until September 1832, when Joseph Smith dictated his revelation on priesthood. Note also that Cowdery's use of the term holy priesthood 
is consistent with Smith's 1832 history, but inconsistent with the September 1832 revelation, which links the term with the high or Melchizedek priesthood. In 1838, Smith corrected Cowdery's error by having the angels specifically say he was conferring upon them the priesthood of Aaron and inserting a description of the duties of the lesser priesthood that very closely follows the wording of the September 1832 revelation. However, both Smith's and Cowdery's terminology are anachronistic for the May 1829 setting, since the term priesthood wasn't used until June 1831 in connection with the high priesthood. The term didn't even appear in the June 1830 Articles and Covenants. Thus, early church records support the claims of the Whitmers and McLellan, both in regard to the absence of angelic ordination and the earliest concept of authority. The motivation for these changes seems to be internal conflict, and Smith's effort to create a hierarchical structure that would align other church leaders under his authority and make him less vulnerable to usurpers and prevent his organization from splintering. Prior to writing his 1832 history and dictating the revelation on priesthood, Joseph Smith visited church members in Missouri twice and there encountered disputations about authority, jurisdiction, and leadership. In a letter to W. W. Phelps, dated 31st July, 1832, Smith called this situation a critical moment in the history of the movement. Chief among Smith's concerns was Edward Partridge, who had been appointed bishop of the church in February 1831 and was presiding over the church in Missouri when Smith made his first visit in July 1831. During this visit, Smith had an altercation with Bishop Partridge. In a 20 September 1831 letter, former Mormon Ezra Booth reminded Partridge of the recent encounter he had with the prophet. When you intimated to Joseph that the land which he and Oliver had selected was inferior in point of quality to other lands adjoining, had you seen the same spirit manifested in me, which you saw in him, would you not have concluded me to be under the influence of violent passions, bordering on madness, rather than the meek and gentle spirit which the gospel inculcates? When you complained that he had abused you, and observed to him, I wish you not to tell us any more, that you know these things by the Spirit when you do not. You told us that Oliver had raised up a large church here, and there is no such thing. He replied, I see it, and it will be so. This appeared to me to be a shift better suited to an impostor than a true prophet of the Lord. On 4th of August, 1831, Smith attended a conference in Caw Township, during which Sidney Rigdon cautioned Bishop Partridge to be obedient to the requisition of heaven. Rigdon evidently felt that Partridge had overstepped the limits of his authority. After Smith's departure, the Missouri Church held a conference on the 10th of March, 1832, and heard charges against Partridge, including his having insulted the Lord's prophet in particular, and assumed authority over him in open violation to the laws of God. The office of bishop was new, and perhaps Partridge, like Bishop Newell K. Whitney in Ohio, thought like the Catholics and Episcopalians, 
that a bishop was the highest office in the church, or at least the church in Missouri. Thus Smith and Partridge, who were both high priests, may have engaged in a dispute over jurisdiction. At this time, however, Partridge humbled himself and asked for forgiveness. After returning to Ohio, Smith dictated a revelation which declared that Partridge hath sinned, and Satan seeketh to destroy his soul. In November 1831, Smith dictated another revelation which more clearly defined the relationship between the office of bishop and his new role as president of the high priesthood. This revelation was addressed to the Church of Christ in the land of Zion, or Missouri, and explained, It must needs be that one be appointed to the high priesthood to preside over the priesthood, and he shall be called the president of the high priesthood of the church, or in other words, the presiding high priest over the high priesthood of the church. From the same comes the administering of ordinances and blessings upon the church, by the laying on of the hands. Wherefore, the office of bishop is not equal unto it, for the office of a bishop is in administering all temporal things. Nevertheless, a bishop must be chosen from the high priesthood. Wherefore, let every man learn his duty, and to act in the office in which he is appointed, in all diligence. In April 1832, Smith again visited the saints in Missouri. The second visit was prompted by a revelation that warned him that Satan seeketh to turn their hearts away. Indeed, the possible apostasy and secession of the Missouri church, especially the loss of the designated land of Zion and the location of the New Jerusalem Temple, was a disturbing thought to church leaders in Ohio. The record of the 26th of April 1832 meeting in Missouri reports that Joseph Smith, Jr., was acknowledged by the high priest in the land of Zion to be president of the high priesthood according to the commandment and ordination in Ohio at the conference held in Amherst, January 25, 1832, and the right hand of fellowship was given him by Bishop Edward Partridge in the land of Zion in the name of the church. All differences were settled, and the hearts of all run together in love. But by the time Smith had returned to Ohio in June 1832, the Missouri church was again in discord. A letter from W. W. Phelps describing these problems was awaiting Smith when he arrived in Kirtland. On the 31st of July 1832, Smith wrote Phelps to tell Brother Edward Partridge it is very dangerous for men who have received the light he has received to be seeking after a sign. For there shall no sign be given for a sign, except as it was in the days of Lot. God sent angels to gather him and his family out of Sodom, while the wicked were destroyed by a devouring fire. Behold, this is an example. Apparently, Partridge had renewed his challenge to Smith's authority. The leaders of the church in Kirtland continued to receive letters from the Missouri church containing low, dark, and blind insinuations. In response, Orson Hyde and Hiram Smith, representing a conference of twelve high priests in Kirtland, wrote to their Missouri brethren on the 14th of January, 1833. At the time, Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and Noel K. Whitney left Zion. All matters of hardness and misunderstanding were settled and buried as they supposed, and you gave them the hand of fellowship. 
But afterwards you brought up all these things again in a censorious spirit, accusing Brother Joseph in rather an indirect way of seeking after monarchical power and authority. This came to us in Brother Coral's letter of June 2nd. We are sensible that this is not the thing Brother Joseph is seeking after, but to magnify the high office and calling whereunto he has been called and appointed by the command of God and the united voice of this church. It was in the midst of these challenges that Smith began preparing an account of his early history that began by delineating the authority by which he restored the church. But while it established his preeminence among others with whom he shared authority, the source of authority remained charismatic, which left him open to other charismatics who could claim revelation. By the summer of 1833, persecution against the church in Missouri escalated, resulting in the destruction of the printing press and independence and expulsion of the Mormons from Jackson County. The loss of the Mormon Holy Land created a crisis in the faith. In the spring of 1834, Joseph Smith began calling for volunteers around the Kirtland area and soon organized a militia of more than 200 Mormons, called Zion's Camp, for the purpose of marching to Missouri and restoring the saints to their lands, by force if necessary. Against this backdrop, Smith renewed his effort to lay before the saints the true source of his authority. At a meeting held on the 21st of April, 1834, in Norton, Ohio, Smith gave a relation of obtaining and translating the Book of Mormon, the revelation of the priesthood of Aaron, the organization of the church in 1830, the revelation of the high priesthood, and the gift of the Holy Ghost poured out upon the church. Unfortunately, the minutes of this meeting are too brief to determine what was meant by the revelation of the priesthood of Aaron, and Cowdery's announcement was still five months away. However, it parallels revelation of the high priesthood, which was not understood as being accompanied by angelic ordination. Regardless, there is no evidence that Smith's description went beyond a revealed command for him and Cowdery to baptize one another. When Smith returned to Kirtland without restoring the saints to their lands in Jackson County and failing to redeem the divinely designated land of Zion, his leadership was once again under suspicion. E.D. Howe, editor of the nearby Painesville Telegraph, reported that there was a constant uproar among the brethren for three or four weeks, which only terminated in a sham trial of the prophet. Some were doubting the truth of the Book of Mormon, Others denying the faith, early Mormon historian John Whitmer recorded. On 16th of August, 1834, Smith wrote to his followers in Missouri that Sylvester Smith and others stirred up a great difficulty in the church against me. Accordingly, I was met in the face and eyes as soon as I had got home with a catalog of charges. The cry was tyrant, pope, king, usurper, abuser of men, angel, false prophet, prophesying lies in the name of the Lord, taking consecrated monies, and every other lie to fill up and complete the catalog. The failure of Zion's camp made it all the more imperative for Smith to complete the transition from charismatic source of authority to one more stable and enduring. First, he assisted Oliver Cowdery in preparing a full history of the rise of the Church of Latter-day Saints, which included the first published version of angelic ordination of himself and Cowdery to the Holy Priesthood. Significantly, this was in a letter Cowdery wrote to W. W. Phelps in Missouri, dated 7th of September, 1834. 
which began by stating that he hoped that his account would prove especially beneficial by confirming Phelps and the Missouri Church in the faith of the gospel. It should be observed that the introduction of this angelic ordination story not only enhanced Joseph Smith's leadership, but it also raised Cowdery to prominence as a co-receiver of special authority. That Cowdery and Smith were both ordained, rather than Cowdery simply witnessing Smith's ordination by the angel, says something about the new dynamics of their relationship. It would not be long before Cowdery's new status would be officially recognized. On 5th of December, 1834, Oliver Cowdery was ordained assistant or co-president, second in authority to Joseph Smith. However, the record of Cowdery's ordination raises questions about the historicity of his previous claim to angelic ordination. In Joseph Smith's large journal, Cowdery recorded that Smith ordained him to the office of assistant president of the High and Holy Priesthood in the Church of the Latter-day Saints, and then explained, It is necessary for the special benefit of the reader that he be instructed into or concerning the power and authority of the above-named priesthood. First, the office of president is to preside over the whole church. Second, the office of assistant president is to assist in presiding over the whole church and to officiate in the absence of the president, according to his rank and appointment, viz. President Cowdery first, President Rigdon second, and President Williams third, as they were severally called. Concerning his sudden rise in the Mormon hierarchy, Cowdery explained, The reader may further understand that the reason why High Counselor Cowdery was not previously ordained to the presidency was in consequence of his necessary attendance in Zion, Missouri, to assist William W. Phelps in conducting the printing business, but that this promise was made by the angel while in company with President Smith at the time they received the office of the lesser priesthood, and further, the circumstances and situation of the church requiring Presidents Rigdon and Williams were previously ordained to assist President Smith. Cowdery's claimed that he and Smith were told about the offices of President and Assistant President of the High Priesthood is doubtful and anachronistic for the May 1829 setting. The High Priesthood wasn't introduced until June 1831, and a President of the High Priesthood wasn't revealed until the following November in response to the challenge of Bishop Edward Partridge. Even then, counselors for the President weren't provided until March 1832. Cowdery's excuse for the delay of his ordination is also suspicious, since there had been more than ample opportunity before December 1834. Following organization of the church on the 6th of April, 1830, Smith and Cowdery were together until Cowdery left Fayette, New York on his mission to Missouri in October. Cowdery and Smith were reunited when the latter visited Missouri in mid-July and early August, 1831 during which time Cowdery was not ordained to the newly revealed high priesthood. Not until he returned to Ohio with Smith was he ordained to the high priesthood on August 28th by Sidney Rigdon. He was present in Hiram, Ohio, when Joseph Smith received the revelation on the 11th of November, 1831, appointing him president of the high priesthood, but was absent in Missouri when Smith was ordained to that office by Sidney Rigdon on the 25th of January, 1832. 
Cowdery had returned to Missouri with John Whitmer, carrying the manuscript revelations to assist W.W. Phelps in printing them. In March 1832, Smith received a revelation, which remains uncanonized, instructing him to take counselors to assist him in the presidency of the high priesthood. On 8th of March 1832, Joseph Smith ordained Jesse Gauze and Sidney Rigdon as counselors of the ministry of the presidency of the high priesthood. Smith and Cowdery were again reunited in late April when Smith made a second visit to Missouri with Counselor Sidney Rigdon and Jesse Gauze and was sustained as president of the high priesthood on the 26th. Soon after returning to Kirtland, Gauze apostatized. On the 5th of January, 1833, Smith dictated a revelation which also remains uncanonized, naming Frederick G. Williams as Gauze's replacement. On 8th of March, 1833, Smith dictated a revelation that outlined the duties of Rigdon and Williams in the First Presidency, stating that they were accounted as equal with thee, Smith, in holding the keys of this last kingdom. Ten days later, Smith ordained Rigdon and Williams to be equal with him in holding the keys of the kingdom and also to the presidency of the high priesthood. Cowdery returned to Kirtland in August 1833 to continue printing there following the destruction of the press in Missouri. While there were many opportunities to ordain Cowdery, none were as obvious as when Cowdery assisted Joseph Smith on the 19th of April, 1834, and confirmed upon Sidney Rigdon authority as first counselor to preside over the church in the absence of Brother Joseph. When Smith left Kirtland for Missouri the following month at the head of Zion's camp, Rigdon, rather than Cowdery, presided over the church for the next three months. So Cowdery's elevation was sudden and unexpected. Cowdery's ordination paved the way for Smith's hierarchical innovations, which he previously resisted. In late June 1829, Smith dictated a revelation that compared Cowdery's and David Whitmer's callings as Book of Mormon witnesses to the Apostle Paul's and directed them to choose twelve disciples who were to build up the church by baptizing and ordaining priests and teachers. This revelation seemed to leave Cowdery and Whitmer outside the contemplated hierarchy. About this time, Cowdery received a counter-revelation that closely followed the wording of Smith's, but differed in that it did not mention the twelve disciples and directed him as an apostle rather than the twelve to build up the church by baptizing and ordaining priests and teachers. Apparently, Smith and Cowdery had different views about the nature of the apostleship, with Smith believing it was a church office in the hierarchy, and Cowdery assuming it was a charismatic calling. Significantly, the June 1830 Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ did not mention the Twelve Apostles, and instead of creating an apostolic hierarchy, it diffused the issue by equating the apostleship with the office of elder. With Cowdery securely near the top of the hierarchy, Smith soon announced that he had received a vision that not only showed him the eternal reward for Zion's camp members who had died during the expedition, but also commissioned him to organize the two major governing bodies in the church hierarchy, namely the Quorum of Twelve Apostles and the Quorum of Seventy. By 14th of February, 1835, Twelve men had been chosen and soon after ordained apostles by Oliver Cowdery and the other two Book of Mormon witnesses. Two weeks later, 
members of the Seventy were chosen and ordained. Another stabilizing event occurred when Joseph Smith finally published his revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, which came off the press in September 1835. In preparing the manuscript revelations in the months before publication, Smith added phrases which had not appeared in earlier versions of several revelations, including details about angelic ordination and the visit of Peter, James, and John. To section 5, dated March 1829, Smith added the words, Hereafter you shall be ordained and go forth and deliver my words unto the children of men. And you must wait a little while, for ye are not yet ordained. To section 7, dated April 1829, he added, I, Jesus, will make thee, Peter, to minister for him, John, and for thy brother James, and unto you three I will give this power and the keys of this ministry until I come. To section 27, dated September 1830, he added, John the Baptist, I have sent unto you my servants Joseph Smith, Jr. and Oliver Cowdery to ordain you unto this first priesthood which you have received, that you may be called and ordained even as Aaron, and also Peter and James and John, whom I have sent unto you, by whom I have ordained you and confirmed you to be apostles and especial witnesses in my name, and bear the keys of your ministry and of the same things which I revealed unto them, unto whom I have committed the keys of my kingdom and a dispensation of the gospel for the last times. Note that the first public mention of the three ancient apostles ordaining Smith and Cowdery associated this visitation with the apostleship rather than the eldership as commonly assumed. It is also important to note that this association did not occur to Smith and Cowdery until after the Quorum of the Twelve had been organized in mid-February 1835, evidently as justification for the new office. Cowdery had failed to mention the appearance of Peter, James, and John in his September 1834 letter to Phelps. But more importantly, he failed to mention it while commissioning the Twelve following their ordinations. Addressing the newly ordained apostles on the 21st of February, Cowdery first read the June 1829 revelation calling for the Book of Mormon witnesses to ordain the Twelve, and then said, You have been ordained to this holy priesthood. You have received it from those who have the power and authority from an angel. The context of this statement implies that the authority to preach the gospel to every nation came from the angel who appeared to the three witnesses in late June 1829, commanding them to bear witness to the world concerning the truth of the Book of Mormon. Thus, it would appear that as of 21st of February 1835, neither Smith nor Cowdery had connected the apostleship to a visitation of Peter, James, and John. It therefore seems probable that the idea was added to Smith's early revelations sometime after the 21st of February and before he left Kirtland in August 1835. When the Whitmers and McLellan questioned the stories of angelic ordination and introduction of the priesthoods, they were also accusing Smith and Cowdery, whom they knew well, of inventing them to give themselves dominion over their brethren. At what point Oliver Cowdery became co-conspirator and pious fraud with Joseph Smith is unclear, 
But Cowdery's willingness to deceive for Smith did not begin in 1834. When Joseph Smith was arrested and tried in South Bainbridge and Colesville, New York, in early July 1830, on the old 1826 charge of being a stonegazer, he pled the statute of limitations, since more than three years had elapsed. One strategy, evidently, was to distance the Book of Mormon's production from Smith's former treasure-seeing activities. According to South Bainbridge resident Abraham W. Benton, who attended the legal proceeding only ten months prior to reporting, During the trial, it was shown that the Book of Mormon was brought to light by the same magic power by which he pretended to tell fortunes, discover hidden treasures, etc. Oliver Cowdery, one of the three witnesses to the book, testified under oath that the said Smith found with the plates from which he translated his book two transparent stones resembling glass set in silver bows, that by looking through these, he was able to read in English the reformed Egyptian characters, which were engraved on the plates. So much for the gift and power of God, by which Smith said he translated his book. Two transparent stones, undoubtedly of the same properties, and the gift of the same spirit as the one in which he looked to find his neighbor's goods. Cowdery's testimony was false. All eyewitnesses to Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon David Whitmer, Martin Harris, Emma Smith, and others agree in their descriptions that he used a seer stone, which he placed in the crown of a hat. He would then thrust his face into the hat, and in the darkness, as he claimed, the translation would appear in luminous writing on the stone, which he read to a scribe, who most of the time was Oliver Cowdery. This method was the same Smith used to locate buried treasures and lost objects. However, Cowdery's description consistently differs from this body of testimony by claiming that Smith used the spectacles-like instrument, later called Urim and Thummim, from the Old Testament's description of Aaron's breastplate, which Smith claimed was found with the plates. The story of Smith's translating with the spectacles became the official version Smith and Cowdery repeatedly told, and the stone in the hat story disappeared. In the first public disclosure of angelic ordination that he prepared with Smith's help in September 1834, Cowdery also made this false claim. On Tuesday, the 7th of April, 1829, I commenced to write the Book of Mormon. These were days never to be forgotten, to sit under the sound of a voice dictated by the inspiration of heaven, awakened the utmost gratitude of this bosom. Day after day I continued, uninterrupted to write from his mouth, as he translated with the Urim and Thummim, or as the Nephites would have said, interpreters, the history or record called the Book of Mormon. When Oliver Cowdery wanted to rejoin the Mormons in 1848, he spoke before a conference at Council Bluffs, Iowa, and not only reaffirmed his testimony of angelic ordination, but also repeated the false story of the Urim and Thummim. According to Bishop Reuben Miller, Cowdery testified, I wrote with my own pen the entire Book of Mormon, save a few pages, as it fell from the lips of the prophet Joseph Smith, as he translated it by the gift and power of God, by the means of the Urim and Thummim, or as it is called by that book, Holy Interpreters. 
I was present with Joseph when an holy angel from God came down from heaven and conferred on us or restored the lesser or ironic priesthood and said to us at the same time that it should remain upon the earth while the earth stands. I was also present with Joseph when the higher or Melchizedek priesthood was conferred by the holy angels from on high. Oliver Cowdery may have been sincere about his testimony of the Book of Mormon, but it is evident from the foregoing that at some point he was convinced by Joseph Smith that deception about angelic ordinations was necessary to keep the church together and for advancing the kingdom of God. As 18th century philosopher David Hume observed in his famous essay on miracles, a religionist may be an enthusiast and imagine he sees what has no reality. He may know his narrative to be false and yet persevere in it with the best of intentions in the world for the sake of promoting so holy a cause.